You're listening to the Ministry Grow Show, brought to you by Reliant Creative, the creative agency for gospel-centered ministries. Find out more at ReliantCreative.org. Welcome to the Ministry Grow Show, a podcast dedicated to helping churches and ministries grow and make more effective impacts for the kingdom of God in an ever-changing digital world. Whether you're building and growing a gospel-centered ministry or leading a church, if you want insight into the strategies, struggles, challenges, and successes of other ministry leaders, you've come to the right place. Welcome back to the Ministry Grow Show. Today on the show, we have Daniel Gluck, uh, Assistant Professor of Intercultural Studies in the School of Theology and Leadership over at William Jessup University. Uh, Daniel, thanks for being on the show. Pleasure to be with you, Zach. Yeah. So this is going to be a little bit different for our audience. Uh, In the past episodes for the podcast, um, at least up until this point, we've been interviewing ministry executives, um, and Daniel is has a unique um, is coming from a unique direction in that he's a, a professor and teacher of intercultural studies. So I think that he's going to be able to bring a ton of value um, on that side and and help ministry executives kind of think through how they run their ministries and making sure that everything is focused on. Um, being discipleship making first and and having that be a um your rescue mission efforts be a, a support to all of that. So um I'm really excited to talk with you Daniel and and get into this. Likewise. So Daniel, let's talk about uh cultural awareness. A lot of our ministries that we a lot of the audience that are running ministries that we work with um are running ministries that are in Africa, they're in India, they're all over the globe, they're doing um, rescue work on the ground. They're, some of them are, are discipleship focused. Um, but they're all, uh, or for, for the most part, there are a lot of ministries that are doing, um, work in other continents, other cultures. So how do we, when we travel as ministry exec, executives, how do we approach the cultures we're entering into with some awareness? Um, maybe we're working with native partners and native missionaries. How do we, kind of wrap our minds around that and and not enter as Americans who think that we know the best way to do things, the best way to run programs, um, but enter maybe as learners? Yeah, I think that's a really important question. And um, I would probably start by saying it's always helpful uh, when entering a new situation to do a little homework on uh, where you're going and who the people are and what their values are and language and culture and all that kind of thing. I always try to learn some basic greetings, at least in the language that I'm uh, going to that people group or whatever, learn something about the history. Any kind of context that you have uh, is always going to be helpful. Another tool that I really love, um, I actually got from a book called Cross-Cultural Servanthood by a guy named Dwayne Elmer, who's a great missions writer. Um he draws this continuum. Maybe you can picture this if you're listening. Uh, it's like a, a line on the board with an arrow on both ends of it, you know, your typical continuum. And most times when we enter culture, especially those of us who come from Western cultures, we think systematically and logically. And most of the time, if we see something culturally, um, we're going to quickly categorize that as either right or wrong. Um, so we'll put it on either side of our arrow line, right? 
And maybe there's a little skinny category in the middle that says different. You know, maybe that's just different, the way that they dress or the way that they eat or the way that they drive or whatever it is about that culture. What Elmer suggests, and I would suggest to you as you think about cross-cultural ministry, is that um, probably a lot of cultural things are uh, our different category in the middle of our continuum should probably be a lot wider than it is for most of us. You know, I'm a pretty black and white person, and I see certain things this way or that way. But there's a lot of things about culture uh, that are just different. Let me give you a quick example. You go to sub-Saharan Africa, and I have a lot of friends there who are polygamists. So you come into their culture, and you see this dude has two wives. You know, that's not cool, especially if I'm coming from, you know, an evangelical Christian background. And our tendency might be to say, first of all, A, that's wrong. This guy is a sinner. He shouldn't be having two wives. And then secondly, maybe to act on that belief and say, if this guy's going to follow Jesus, he has to divorce one of his wives or get rid of one of them. That's going to be a disaster when it comes to development work, because what we don't know, you may not know about sub-Saharan Africa, is that the whole economic system is based on family. And if that guy abandons his second wife, because it's the right thing to do biblically, all of a sudden her entire banking system and economic stability structure has gone uh, away. She she is an outcast from society, and she's uh, got some serious strikes against her. So uh, I think we have to think a lot more deeply about what right and wrong and different are when we cross culture. Well, and I think that the Bible speaks a lot more about divorce than it does about um, having multiple wives. Wouldn't you agree with that? Yeah. So how does that, how does that relate to like within our own culture? Because there's subcultures within the United States that we, we tend to do the same thing with. We enter that subculture and, and, and look at things and go, Hey, that's a little bit different than my subculture. I've, I've experienced growing up. That is maybe wrong. Or, um, I I think that can be applied that, that approach to, uh, a Christian worldview can be applied to us here on the ground. Maybe those that don't travel to other countries, but are working here, um, running ministries here, or just being Christian, Jesus Christ followers, like having that approach when we enter different subcultures can be relevant here as well. Definitely. Yeah, I think, um, you know, Stephen Covey, back in the day, he wrote this book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, and he has this principle, which I think is a great principle. Seek first to understand, then to be understood. And I think it applies the same way when we walk into an urban setting here in the U.S. or we walk into a different microcultural group. Um, What is it? uh, Can we enter with a posture that says, what is it that I need to learn about this culture and about this culture's history and about this culture's values before I start making judgment calls? Now, the devil's advocates, the the naysayers will say, well, uh, Dr. Gluck, are you just trying to be really relativistic and say that that guy's truth is his truth and your truth is your truth and all that kind of stuff? I don't think that's what we're saying at all. Um, I think there are biblical standards and moral values in black and whites um, that we need to stick with that sometimes we might need to confront in our culture or in other people's cultures. However, 
Um, I do think that difference area in the middle of the continuum is probably a lot wider than we like to make it. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and I think that that is one of the things that's so amazing about the gospel is that it, the gospel can permeate and be relevant across cultures, regardless of culture. Like it's it's going to be rele- relevant in Africa. It's going to be relevant here. It's going to be relevant in India. Um, and and so that's one of the things that just makes the gospel so beautiful. I wholeheartedly agree. Yeah. So maybe expanding on this, talk about maybe uh, some cultural grace in in that. So I'm a, I'm an executive running a ministry, and we run. Uh, or we support orphanage in Africa or India or whatever the country. And obviously I can't learn everything about that culture uh, when I go over there. So how does that, how does grace within that play into this? Yeah, that's a good question. I think um, a lot of this, and this may touch on a couple other topics we're looking at today, but um, a great rule of thumb when trying to understand culture is to do your best. Uh, step number one, in my opinion, as you're entering into a new culture or trying to form a partnership with a, you know, a global NGO or something like that, is to find uh, indigenous leaders, uh, make a partnership, find a connection with an indigenous leader that's a godly person that you believe you can trust, even though you still have to build that trust and try to bounce all of your ideas off of that person um, and see through the lens of someone who is indigenous to that culture because that's the only way, uh, the best way in my opinion, that you can kind of decipher some of these ethical codes, uh, these black and white areas maybe in your own mind that might be different in that culture. Let me give you a quick example. Um, In Africa, it's a collective culture. So if you partner with an NGO in Africa, It would not be unusual at all for you to receive a donation from the United States, let's say, or somewhere in the West, a Western church, and you channel those funds over to your nonprofit partnership. And then all of a sudden you find out those funds are being used for uh, something that you didn't intend those funds to be used for. That's a big cultural no-no in our Western context. You know, we're all about the intent of the donor and How dare you use funds for something else? But in a collective world, a collectivist mindset, that's absolutely acceptable. You know, if there's a collective need in the community that outweighs the need that that money was given for, it's absolutely moral and ethical and acceptable in the mind of somebody, a leader in sub-Saharan Africa, to redirect those funds as needed. So now we have a culture clash. We have to find a way to reconcile those two uh, ethical values weigh them against God's word and decide what's going to be appropriate for this cultural context. And so would you say that it tends, it should tend to default to the culture that you're working within? Generally speaking, I think uh, that's probably a better rule of thumb because uh, those of us from a Western uh, systematic logical mindset would tend to err too far on the other side. Although that doesn't just give us uh, that doesn't just give a license for us to only go with the ethic of the culture. Again, in the instance of sub-Saharan Africa, uh, we've seen there's good literature that shows there's rampant corruption among leaders and governments and even churches and things like that. Not that we don't have our own corruption, but 
some of those cultural values also need to be challenged when decisions are being made that are not true to the Word of God or to a Christian ethic. Uh, I think we need to gently raise those concerns, again, not directly and publicly with the broad people that we're working with, but hopefully with a small team of trusted uh, indigenous leaders that we can bounce that off of and struggle with together and try to find uh, a compromise that works. That's that's great. Yeah, I completely agree. So expanding on this idea of like us as Americans coming with a culture that's very black and white in, in decision making and how we do things running our ministries, what are some other examples um, that you have seen that you could maybe share with our audience? Yeah, absolutely. Um, black and white thinking. We come, uh, whether we know it or or accept it or not, we definitely, uh, I'm saying we in the West, we come from a fix-it culture. So um, whenever we come into a situation, um, let's see, let me think of an example. The You know, you come into a small village in sub-Saharan Africa and there's no clean water there. You know, the ladies are drawing water from the river and carrying it on their heads up to the village and the water's nasty and people are getting waterborne illness and all this kind of stuff. Immediately, we're going to say, and I don't think this is necessarily a bad thing, we need to dig a well. Let's do it right now. We'll find some money. We'll dig a well. Boom, we've got clean water. And there's a lot of great organizations doing that kind of thing. What I think we need to think about if we're, if we're trying to do development in an empowering way is, first of all, figuring out whether those people actually want clean water in their village. Because if they don't take ownership of that idea, five years down the line, you dig a well, you put a pump in, and the pump breaks, they're not going to have ownership of that pump, and chances are that well is going to go abandoned and left alone because they didn't decide to put the pump in in the first place, nor do they know how to fix it, nor do they have the resource to fix it. Um, I think uh, very thoughtful development would involve indigenous leadership, maybe the village elder say, hey, I notice you don't have clean water here. Has there been a desire to have clean water? Uh, such and such, you know, how do you think we might fix this together? Well, we need money to do this and that. Well, Maybe we could do a cost-sharing thing where we raise half the money, you raise half the money. We put in this well, they take ownership, you help subsidize, you help with some knowledge or resource or whatever, and all of a sudden we've got a partnership that I think is much more empowering to the local leadership. Yeah, absolutely. That's great. So what are some different learning tools that uh, ministry executives would be able to um, use to expand their their knowledge base around these ideas? Yeah. Um, one, one study that I, well, there's two main ones that I would recommend today in the brief time that we have. One is just an outstanding book that I think everyone interested in development should read, and it's called When Helping Hurts. Uh, many of you might be familiar with it by Corbett and Fickert. Um, they just have a great um, discussion of how, um, we uh, Christian organizations, especially um, development organizations, are more prone to want to come and bring relief um, to bring handouts and money and fix-its and things to problems that sometimes um, might merit a deeper thinking about um, the other two categories that they present, which are rehabilitation, 
getting people back on their feet, and then development, which is really proactive, uh, seeing the future and trying to set people up for long-term empowerment so that uh, they can respond to their own crises on their own. I think that's a great resource. Another one, when you're thinking about culture, crossing culture and trying to understand culture, there's a great study that I've done a, a good bit of research on and is pretty well known in academic communities called the GLOBE study. Uh, G-L-O-B-E, all those letters stand for something. Um, and they've whittled down culture into nine dimensions globally. They're kind of like nine categories of cultural value um, that are different for different uh, regions of the world. So you might find um, that in uh, China, for instance, there is uh, a high degree of um, uncertainty avoidance. There's a dimension called uncertainty avoidance that in Chinese culture, there's a face saving um, value that we want to make. We want to save your dignity and we want to save our own dignity. So we would uh, have a tendency, Chinese folks in what they call Confucian Asia, would have a tendency to want to avoid the uncertainty of making someone look bad or confronting them in public or whatever it is. And so if you look at the GLOBE study on these different regions of the world, it can really help you understand um, some things to watch out for when it comes to culture in different regions. I would highly recommend that for any nonprofit leader who's looking globally to impact uh, the world. Yeah, that's great. Thank you. So let's talk a little bit about when helping hurts a little bit more. Um, and this, I think, segues into the, our, our next question. But right. um, the importance of going and understanding that God is already at work where we're going to be going. So he's already at work in Africa. He's already at work in India. He's already at work all over the world. And he's been at work ever since the fall of of Adam and Eve and, and, the, and sin entering the world, right? Like right. God has been at work redeeming humanity back to himself ever since that point in history. And so um, he's already at work all over the world. He's already doing amazing things. When we go and we answer the call that he's placed on our lives, we're, we're going and we're meeting him where he's already at. He's, he's not surprised by us being there. He's not, uh, you know, it, there's, there's no surprise. He knows what's going on. He's, he's aware. And so, Maybe talk a little bit about that idea um, that and the mentality and mindset that we need to have as ministry execs when we go. That we're not we're not bringing God anywhere. He's already there. He's already doing work. We're meeting him where he's at. Yeah, I think that very theological understanding is is the grounds that would shape a great missiology, um, which is the idea that God's mission is happening and is going forth regardless of you and me. But the beauty of it is that God chooses to use you, you and I in his mission. When we think about it that way, I think it challenges uh, the potential view that I am a savior from the West or from a developed country going into an undeveloped place to fix everything that's wrong with that place because God is already at work there. He's already bringing justice. It's his nature. Um, he, the Bible says that Jesus is drawing all men and women unto himself. So it's like this whole thing is already happening. We're just trying to be there. We're trying to be on board and point people in the right direction uh, mm -hmm. so 
can have an encounter with Jesus. So I think when we think about, uh, you know, ministry executives going uh, to serve in other places of the world, I think we have to think about, um, you know, who is already doing the work there that we might jump on board with and hopefully resource and encourage and learn from. Um, do they do they even want help in the first place when Helping Hurts is going to talk about asking the question, you know, is this really a crisis? Do that, you know, have people even asked for help? Because a lot of times we go places and assume they want help, uh, but they didn't ask for help in the first place. They were doing fine. You know, I hear so many people. I just heard this last week in India talk about how, you know, oh, those people who live up there in the mountains, they're they're such a backward culture. You know, they're so uh, savage and undeveloped and all this kind of stuff. I don't like that mentality at all. I think that's a very uh, paternal and colonial mentality to say that kind of thing, because the truth is those people up in the mountains have been living and thriving perfectly well for thousands and thousands of years. And who are you and I to assume that they're living savage, uncivilized lives or whatever? Do they want to develop? Do they want cell phones? Do they want microwave ovens in their grass huts? Uh, that's for them to decide, not for you and me to decide. So I think that's pretty important. And then we have to ask the question, um, you know, can those people help themselves if they do want help? Uh, would they be able to help themselves through their own means? Because if so, it's going to end up being paternal. It's going to end up being micromanaging and unhealthy, creating unhealthy dependency for us to come in and help people who could really help themselves. Um, so those are a number of questions that uh, I think we really have to ask when coming alongside organization. I think it, you know, you could think of it kind of like a train. There's a train of movement and development and uh, efforts already going on. And you and I, if we're working in nonprofit organizations, are hopefully just jumping on the train at a certain uh, stop and moving with the train and helping the train get to where it's going. And then we're jumping off at the next stop and the train's going to keep going and doing what it's supposed to do. Um, that really will get us, that will help challenge us to get away from the idea um, that we are going to go fix everything and leave and everything's going to be all better. Right. Well, and do you think there's a, do you think there's ever a balance with a culture that maybe, maybe embarrassed to ask for that help? Maybe you see a need and, um, and maybe even they express that there is a need, but they're not willing to ask for that help because of maybe, uh, shame or, or, guilt of asking or fear of asking is are there any cultures where that may be the case and we have to be aware of that absolutely um i think that's a great question to think about and um yeah i think maybe definitely if you look at the globe study which i mentioned um shame cultures you know cultures that want to protect uh, the shame of themselves and you are never going to ask for help, generally speaking, you know. And the other problem, the flip side is, whenever I ask them to do something or if they want something, they might always just say yes to try to please you when they really don't mean yes. Right. Does that make sense? So um, maybe a role that I would like to suggest for uh, executive leaders of nonprofits would be sometimes, although we don't want to be uh, pushy and enforce things on on people. 
we might be a catalyst. We might be a voice to be able to raise awareness for people. You know, go back to the people in Africa drawing water from the river. We might need to be the people to say, you know what? Do you know how many diseases are in that water? And do you see all these sick kids in your village that have diarrhea and dysentery and everything else under the sun? It's coming from that water. And if we can get that water clean, uh, those kids are going to go back to school and we're not going to be losing children in the night from disease and all this kind of stuff. So sometimes there's a role that we can play, an important role, those of us who have knowledge to bring to the surface some of the real truth that may not be understood because of uh, technological or science development and then help others realize that maybe this is a legitimate need that they want to choose and they want to ask for help for. Well, and I think that comes back full circle to making sure that we're building deep relationships with the, the partners we're partnering with in whatever country we're working in. If if we have that deep relationship with a with a native partner, native missionary on the grounds, and we've spent time with them, we've got to know them. We've we've shown that we actually are here to help, and not just push our own agendas on them. Uh, I think that there's going to be a a a, more, a a willingness to be honest about what's really happening. Um, but it has to start with that deep relationship and that and showing that hey, I actually do care. I love you. I want to be here to help. If you like if you need it or not, like we're here, we've built this relationship. Um, yeah. And so it's, it's got to start with that. And I think that that just comes back to biblical um, realities. Like that's, that's how it's meant to be. It's meant to be relationships meant to be driven by community. Yeah, I agree. Cool. Well, I'd like to transition a little bit to our next question. Um, this idea around discipleship making. So a lot of the ministries that we work with and a lot of ministries we talk with here on the podcast um, are rescue mission ministries. They're, they're doing amazing work maybe for orphans or um, slaves, s- slave areas all over the world. I mean, there's, there's all kinds of ministries doing really cool stuff uh, from the me- rescue side of things. Um, how can they what are some ideas you have around bringing discipleship making into those rescue uh, opportunities and programs? Because I think that um, it's easy to get lost as ministry exec- executives. It's easy to get lost around doing the actual work that our ministries are, are created for. Um, but the discipleship making is a huge piece to this. We have to be, um, we can't be rescuing out of one form of slavery into another. Like Jesus Christ has to be an element in this and has to be the end goal. Like that has to be the focus. That has to be what our programs are designed for and around. Um, and so maybe some, do you have some ideas around what ministries could do or um, maybe just speak on the importance of having that be a core element as a gospel centered Christian organization? Yeah, sure. I, I would say uh, initially or to start that I'm thrilled um, that I think there's actually a global movement towards this specific idea. You know, we've seen books come out like uh, Francis Chan's Multiply, and there's a whole movement called DMM, uh, Discipleship Making Movement, Disciple Making Movement that's doing training all around the world with nonprofits and church planters. And I think what the Christian community is realizing is if we are going to reach the world for Christ— 
Um, and I do mean reach the world in a holistic way, not necessarily with just word, but also with deed hand in hand, which I think this generation is really stoked about and uh, really committed to. Um, that we are not going to be able to do it just by trying to send missionaries from developed countries to countries that are undeveloped or unreached. I think the church is beginning to realize and nonprofit organizations are beginning, beginning to realize we absolutely, there's no option but to have to multiply, use a multiplication approach to the way that we do things. How does this play out for real-life mission organizations, relief organizations, development organizations? Um, you know, I teach leadership here at William Jessup University, so I have a little bit of a bias towards uh, leadership. And one principle that I love in leadership, and I think we should all think about, is effective leaders should always be working themselves out of a job. So if you think about your nonprofit and you're directing an orphanage in, you know, fill in the blank country and you're loving on kids who don't have families and you're providing uh, wonderful education and welfare to them um, on day one. I don't even think you wait till year number two on day one. You're already thinking, how can I raise up? an indigenous leader to take over direction of this orphanage? How can I empower national people? Maybe we need outsiders to get this thing started or funded or built or whatever it is. But our goal should always be uh, raising up indigenous leadership and multiplying that indigenous leadership. So I think, honestly, um, I don't know if this is offensive. I don't think it's offensive. But if your organization uh, or if your ministry doesn't have a component of raising up leaders, uh, that's a red flag to me. You know, if I'm a college professor here uh, that's not thinking about the next generation of college professors and leaders and not looking at my students in a way that's empowering them to go to grad school and get leadership opportunities or whatever it's going to take for them to lead, then I'm failing at my job, in my opinion. And I think the same is true for nonprofit. You know, if we're doing great development work, uh, we're starting rescue houses or orphanages or food programs or whatever else we're doing, but we're not raising up and empowering the folks that we're going to serve. Uh, I think we're missing a significant part of the kingdom of God. That's so good. Yeah, I completely agree. So what are some, what are some tangible things that, that, okay, I'm a, a ministry executive. I've got, uh, I'm running or supporting an orphanage and, uh, wherever it may be in the world, uh, and I've I've established some leaders. What are some things that I can do now with that leader on the ground to help him make disciples within, with as boots on the ground, make disciples from here in the states, maybe working over there. Like, what what are some things that some tangible things ministries can do? Yeah. Um. Even as you're asking the question, I'm thinking about crossing culture. You know. Um. Because from my mindset, you know, I, I love the model of Jesus, which I think crosses culture. You know, Jesus uh, invested deeply in 12 people. Um, he met with them regularly. He discipled them. He empowered them. He raised them up. And then ultimately, he said, I'm giving you authority to go do the same work that I'm doing. Um, I think that uh, in, the, in the case of... Uh, uh, let's say an orphanage in the developing world somewhere. 
I would suggest that the director of that or- orphanage, whether it's a Western person from outside or an indigenous person, have at least a small team of three or four people that they meet with regularly in some culturally appropriate way um, and uh, talk about discipleship and sh- uh, allow opportunities for those uh Proteges, those mentees to shadow um, the leader. So invite those, invite young leaders to meetings and let them shadow activities that are going on. Include them in the process of decision making. Uh, give them maybe some more information than they deserve if they can be trusted with it, so they understand how organization works and they can see why decisions are made the way they are. Um, raise those leaders up, and then. Uh, For us to be encouraging those leaders and saying, uh, you always need to have someone speaking into your life and you always need to be speaking in someone else's life. So maybe those leaders in turn have small groups of uh, young teenagers within the orphanage or within the ministry that they're raising up and empowering and praying with and putting leadership principles into so that, um, you know, not only is it great kingdom stuff, you know, things that we want to do for the kingdom of God. But even from a secular business perspective, it's great succession planning. You know, who are we going to raise up to take over these positions when we retire or this generation, you know, uh, stops work or shifts to their new place? Uh, I think we have to be thinking about that as leaders. Yeah, absolutely. When we touched on that, so I'm not sure if you know Leonard Lee. He runs Link Ministries. Um so Leonard is is doing exactly that. He's he's not a ministry that's focused on rescue um, per se, but he's going and he's uh, teaching and leading other pastors and, and native missionaries and and native leaders uh, to to make disciples. And so that in back in episode one, that he was our first guest on the podcast, but we we talked about that idea, uh, and he even touched on um, so. Using Jesus as the example, he had 12, but even beyond that, if we look closely, he really focused on three. And so if we take that principle ourselves and, and just simply focus on three people that we, that we really invest in and really, um, pour ourselves into to make those three disciples, that can expand really quickly. Even though it doesn't seem like a lot, it's simple. It's easy to grasp. Um, and it's something that I can tangibly go do really easily right now. Um, both here at home, if you don't run a ministry or you're not a ministry exec, or maybe you are running things um, with a, a great leadership model, but you're you're here and your team on the ground of native missionaries is across the globe, like you can do that here as well in your own personal life. So I think that there's some cool things uh, that come out of that. And I think that's really important, Zach, because I actually think what you're describing and what you're asking about is increasingly what the role of Western organizations should be in the developing world. Um, I'm, it's my bias, maybe my suspicion that maybe our role in, in the American church, for instance, has more to do with raising up leaders and discipling others to do the work that ultimately God has called us to do than for us in the West to actually be doing uh, the specific hands-on, boots-on-the-ground kind of work. And that's hard for us to give up sometimes, but I think we are called to raising up, to raise up indigenous leadership to do that important work for the kingdom of God. 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, especially it's difficult as a, as a culture that is that fix it culture. We want to come in and a lot of times we want to just do things ourselves. Like this is my call. This is what the Lord placed on my heart. I need to be, I need to be the one doing that. So, um, it's, it's difficult to, to submit that and, and release control of that and allow, um, God to bring in other people to the call that maybe he placed on one person's life. That's right. Yeah. That's cool. So let's uh, transition into our last topic, um, this idea around social justice, something that we talked about offline a little bit. Um, but what? Let's. I'm just going to have you jump into this, and then maybe we can have some dialogue based on um, this direction you want to go around the idea of social justice. Yeah, I think a question we've been struggling with, or I've been struggling with personally, and we have here in you know a Christian academic institution is. Uh, there's a wonderful opportunity that we have right now in the North American church, I think. Um, And it may already be fleeting. I don't know. It might already be waning. But this idea that uh, not only does this generation want to go after justice and kind of a holistic gospel, I would call it, a holistic approach to mission, um, but our churches are getting on board. Every church I know of wants to be about justice. The problem that I see um, or that I'm struggling with is that um, our definition of justice for most of our churches, at least in the past 10, 15 years that I've seen, most people, when you say justice, let's do justice, has to do uh, a lot of times specifically with freeing people from sex trafficking or something along those lines. Uh, Maybe bonded labor or some of these other key justice issues. Now, don't get me wrong. I think those are very, very important parts of uh, biblical justice, what um, what God wants to be all about. I think there's scripture through and through that talks about uh, helping the orphans and widows and uh, giving, uh, loosing the chains of the captives and all this kind of stuff. But I think it's a very narrow, uh, I think it's only a part of the holistic biblical definition of justice. And I wonder if uh, we have a role in executive leadership, uh, the those who are a part of this podcast listening, if we have a role to maybe redefine biblical justice a little bit uh, in a way that's uh, a lot broader than just the idea of stopping human trafficking or some of these hot button issues. So yeah, absolutely. So what would you around this idea of social justice, not being just bonded slavery or not just being slavery, what would that expand out into? What would that look like? If you, if we look at it from a biblical point of view, what would fall under that? Yeah, there's a couple, um, I would just briefly mention, there's a couple terms in the old Testament, uh, where, where God uses the idea of justice. There's one called mishpat in Hebrew. And it's kind of like a judicial term. So that's one half of justice, I would say, to treat people with equity or bring fair judgment, you know, like a judge in a courtroom with his gavel, you know, judging from right and wrong and that kind of thing. The other half of justice, uh, there's a Hebrew word, cicada, sorry, sedeka, um, and I'm not a Hebrew scholar, just as a disclaimer. Um, <laughs> I know enough to be dangerous. Um, that just means the right thing or righteousness. And I tend to believe that 
God's justice, uh, the nature of God, is, could be whittled down to basically two things. God wants to reconcile his people with himself. Um, you know, that's salvation. That's, uh, uh, I will draw all men unto himself. And he wants to reconcile people with each other. And we know from working in development uh, and all these great mission organizations that um, reconciling people with God is step number one. Step number two, there's all kinds of inequities in the world. You know, I just came back from India. There's the caste system where there's untouchable people in culture that uh, may never get the same opportunity, um, the same uh, treatment that those in the higher caste will get. We have the same thing in America, even though we don't call it the caste system. We have systemic injustice of certain ethnic groups, people groups, where uh, those folks don't have the same right or the same freedom necessarily to the same things. Some of you may disagree with me. Um, I think a holistic view of justice uh, has to look at a much broader view than just the idea of saving sex slaves, even though I want to do that as as badly and as deeply and as passionately as so many of you do. I think we have to look at uh, a broader view of human brokenness and the brokenness of human dignity and poverty, which causes human trafficking a lot of the times and causes orphans. I think we have to look at uh, corruption. I think we have to look at um, spiritual brokenness, spiritual depravity and poverty. Uh, there's So the holistic view of justice, you know, I can't explain every area in a brief moment here, but we have to look at a broader view of what it means for God to reconcile people to himself and to each other and to be, uh, to be operating in the way that he originally intended us to operate as a part of his body and his family. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I think that comes back to the idea of rescuing, uh, rescuing people out of one form of slavery into another. Like that, that can be, I can say the same thing about my neighbor who has maybe has the same opportunities as me in a, uh, um, you know, relatively well to do area and compared to the rest of the world, um, maybe has the same experience or same opportunities as me. Uh, economically, socio-economically, um, but the, at the end of the day, there's if they're not a believer in Jesus Christ, their soul is is just as doomed as the little girl that we just rescued out of sex slavery in India. Um, if the if Jesus Christ is not being presented, if he's not being shared, if the gospel story is not being told, uh, and so it, it can be dangerous to to get into that. Yes, we're doing social justice, but with what end goal in mind? If if the gospel is not a part of that end goal, then it that, that that's a dangerous place to be as a, as ministry executives and and just as believers in general. Yeah, and that's something I think uh, that our college students uh, are struggling with. You know, is uh, I think um, they may tend to be a little more. Uh, uh, leaning towards the deed side, you know, let's do justice for the oppressed, which is really, really important. But um, we may need to swing back a little more toward the middle of we have to keep the word parallel, you know, the, the message of Christ, the reconciliation of Christ, the hope of Christ, right alongside, you know, the deeds that are going to bring people to justice. Yeah. Well, and it, 
what is the difference? I, I think it's important to ask the question as ministry executives. What's the difference between my supposedly gospel-centered ministry or gospel-centered church? What's the difference between what we're doing and just a humanitarian effort, humanitarian charity? Like if if there's no obvious difference, if the gospel is not obviously a part of what you're doing, then then you may just be just another humanitarian um, organization. And at, not to say that those organizations aren't doing amazing work, aren't doing really great work, but the gospel has to be an important piece and, and the end goal. Um, if if we're gonna, you know, make an actual long term difference, I agree. Because ultimately, it's the only thing that's going to bring true hope and true reconciliation to God and each other. Yeah, absolutely. Can can you expand on that idea of um, uh, focusing our time and our efforts in that in leadership, um, not just not just trying to fix the the symptom, um, but you, do you see what I'm doing? Do you get on getting it? I'm not sure how to re- word my question, but um, I think I'm with you. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, another thing uh, that that I think is really important, and one of the greatest obstacles to, I think you're asking about empowering and multiplication and uh, duplicating leadership and stuff. Am I on the right track here? Yeah. Yes. Definitely. Yeah. I think. Um, Unfortunately, uh, human nature, we want to, uh, I think the goal (laughs) in many ways, whether we admit it or not, the goal of most leaders is to get and retain and utilize and maximize power in society. That's Mm -hmm. what I would say. You know, I want to get the position of influence so that I can wield that influence and I can maybe do it for my own benefit and hopefully for the benefit of others too. But I want to keep myself in the position of leadership so that I can have control over certain things. Um, I think that Christian leadership, um, we talk about a concept called transformational leadership here at William Jessup University, or many of you have heard about the idea of servant leadership uh, from Robert, Robert Greenleaf. Um That kind of leadership, Jesus kind of leadership, um, actually gave up power. Or some people said, uh, some people say that he operated under authority, someone else's authority, his father's authority versus his own power or his own trump card. Um, I think what I'm trying to say is that great leaders um, have to willingly give up power. That's part of the working yourself out of a job thing that's so hard for us. Sometimes uh, when you give up power, when you want to truly be empowering, which is the exact meaning of that word, it means that you're going to get passed up for the promotion or the pay raise. It means that you're going to get taken advantage of by someone who's power hungry and wants to pass you on the corporate ladder. Um but I think it's closer to the heart of Christ than trying to get and maintain and utilize power for our own good. A lot of times we think that uh, the test of a true leader 
is if we leave a certain position, you know, I leave my post as a nonprofit director and the nonprofit comes unraveled and it totally falls apart. I think that's actually failure as a leader. The, the true test of a great leader in a nonprofit is you leave and you've empowered people in such a way that things actually get better when you move on and you work yourself out of a job. I think that's a really different paradigm than most of us are used to. That's really cool. Well, Daniel, this is about all the time that we have. Uh, this has been this has been amazing, um, and I know that I personally have got a ton of, out of this. And so I just really appreciate you being on the show and sharing your insight and experience um, and knowledge around this idea of intercultural uh, awareness and, and studies. And so thank you so much for being on the show and sharing your time with us and our and uh, and our listeners. Uh, we appreciate it. No problem, man. It's been a great conversation, and uh, I just thank you for the privilege of being able to have it. Yeah, absolutely. Daniel, how can people get a hold of you if they want to learn more or ask questions beyond what we talked about today? Yeah, the easiest way is probably to go to the Jessup website, um, jessup.edu, or you can even hit me up with an email, dgluck, D-G-L-U-C-K, at jessup.edu. Awesome. Well, Daniel, thank you. I appreciate your time again, and uh, wish you the best. Thank you, Zach. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Ministry Grow Show. If you enjoyed it, we'd appreciate it if you rate and or review us on the iTunes store. And make sure you subscribe so you never miss an episode. If you have a story to share with other ministry directors and pastors, or know someone who would be an incredible guest on the Ministry Grow Show, let us know. We love connecting with ministry executives and sharing their wisdom and insight with our audience. Just send us an email at info at reliantcreative.org. And lastly, If you need help telling your ministry story, we would love to share how we can help in that process. Check out Reliant Creative at reliantcreative.org. See you next time.